This is Tommy's Outdoors 130. And today is the first episode of the series of four dedicated to the CAN project. CAN is one of those cross-border projects, environmental projects. Um, and you already know that I produced a uh, already two series of uh, podcasts related to these environmental scientific projects. And a can is another one. And uh, by the way, I have a question for you. Um, please give me a feedback. Do you like those series? Do you like those series uh, about scientific projects or environmental projects? And would you maybe prefer to have them released all at once? Or maybe week after week after week? Or maybe like I'm, I'm doing that at the moment. So it's like every second week and I'm trying to mix it up things a little bit and put some other episodes between them. So let me know. Um, uh, because, you know, uh, I'm curious to hear, uh, do you like this type of content and how would you like or prefer this to be delivered? And if you don't know how to get in touch with me, uh, the best way to get in touch with me is to subscribe to my newsletter. Um, there's a link in the description of this show, or you can just go to newsletter.tommysoutdoors.com and you will not only get notifications about uh, upcoming episodes of the podcast, uh, but also you can just hit the reply button and email me directly and let me know what you think. So like I said, today is the first episode and in total going to be four episodes. We're going to talk about blanket bog, we're going to talk about raised bog and we're going to talk about freshwater lakes and uh, wetlands. And today, first episode, uh, my guest is Abby McSherry and we talk about like a little bit introduction to the CAN project. So we're going to touch on everything and we're going to talk about what uh, what is CAN project, what are the goals and aims and, and, and kind of introduce the project and introduce upcoming episodes of the podcast about other work packages related to uh, this project. And so, yeah, uh, once again, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter, newsletter.tommysoutdoors.com or just go to the description of this show and click the link there and subscribe and in general check the check out the description of the show there's a lot of links and a lot of goodies in there it's almost like a newsletter and so on oh and by the way uh if you're new here or maybe you're not new here but you haven't rated the podcast yet please leave the rating five star rating on spotify or apple this is great help for me and for the podcast so uh you know if you like what i'm doing here and if you like those podcasts and if you appreciate it please leave the rating it's a great help uh, and yes, um, folks, that's it for uh, this introduction. And now um, the CAN project and Abby McSherry. Abby, welcome to Tommy's Outdoors. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Very good. So we are here today talking about the CAN project, C-A-N-N. Mm -hmm. So obviously the natural start is what is CAN project? Okay, so with these things, they always try and make a really clever um, little set of initials. So it actually stands for Collaborative 
action for the Natura Network. So the Natura Network is the network of special conservation sites across Europe. Um, and collaborative is because we're cross-border um, and because we're made up of a partnership of lots of different um, bodies who are working together. So it's again one of those cross-border collaborative projects which we we keep 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 talking on the podcast they're so important uh, yeah they are because, so important because so the nature doesn't know borders and it doesn't it's, no absolutely it doesn't know which side particularly here in ireland where you can literally step over a stream and you're in a different jurisdiction um so you know we've not even got you know between two of our two of our partner countries we've not even got you know a physical a physical division you know it's just it's it's um it's so important that that we work together on these things <laughs> Yeah. And project is also sponsored by Interig. Um can you can you because there was like a many um questions about Interig and I know that it's quite important to mention that this is sponsored or financed by Interig. Can you tell us what Interig is? Um, well, it's Interreg uh, VA is the actual um, actual part of Interreg. It is so it's it's um, a funding mechanism which helps cross border and border communities to work on all sorts of things. It doesn't just focus on environmental. Environmental uh, projects is just one of its one of its. Um, um, things that it does. So it, it does social policy and, you know, provision of, of services for, for communities. So it's a hugely, hugely wide ranging, uh, funding stream from the European Union. Um, and in this case, we are one of the environmental projects that it's working on. Um, and it tries to do, um, innovative projects. So it tries to find out new ways of working, uh, more effective ways of working, new partnerships, new techniques. And also um, has quite a strong um, focus on legacy so that after the funding, because this is always a problem with these fixed funding, that after the funding, the learning doesn't disappear, the networks don't disappear, um, the community engagement doesn't disappear. Um, that's the idea. Whether it's successful or not, it, without the money afterwards is, is always debatable. Um, but we do do our best within within the money that's there. And that's very much written into the project that um, when when our money runs out, that the project's good doesn't run out. Yeah. And and your website, so anyone who wants to learn more about the CAN project, the website is thecanproject.org. That's correct. Uh, and uh, you you have like a lot of partners. There's a, uh, I don't know whether it is something similar to Interreg, which is SEUBP, special EU programs body and there's the department of housing and planning and and all those partners so there there are all partners of can project well um the 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 two the three government departments um, are providing joint funding with Interreg. And all of that funding is delivered through the SEUPB, the Special EU Programs Body. Um, so they, they are at the top level of the, of the partnerships. They are providing the funding, um, and obviously receiving the, the results of, of what we do, um, and hopefully using them in the future, particularly with the government departments to, um, make sure that they carry on delivering the right kind of work. So the, that's the level of partnership for, for those bodies. And then the actual CAN partnership itself is made up of 10, 
can't count, 10 or 11. So we've got um, ACT, which is the Argyle and Isles Coast and Countryside Trust, and they are our partners um, on um, Isla and the Irish Scottish um, Islands. We work with Nature Scott itself um, in Scotland. Um, and then we've got ABC Council, which is Armagh, Banbridge and Craig Avon Council. We've got what used to be called IT Sligo, and they're now called the Atlantic Technological University. So they've had a rebranding since we started working with them. We have East Border Region, um, and they bring us all together um, and work with us to make sure that we, we do all the work properly for SUPB. We've got the Golden Eagle Trust. We've Monaghan County Council. We've Nature Scott that I mentioned. We've Ulster Wildlife, the University of Ulster, Ulster University, um, and ourselves, who I work for, is Newry Morn and Down District Council, and we're the lead partner um, of the whole project. So we sort of bring it together. Okay, so we, we got this thing out of the way. Now I'm going to ask the question again. So what is CAN? So what, what is CAN aiming to achieve and, and what, your, what your folks are doing? So CAN is a, a cross-border environmental project and we aim to improve the condition of protected habitats and support the priority species on those habitats um, across from Scotland, um, from Ben Nevis and the sites uh, in the Scottish Highlands across the Scottish Islands, Isla, um, etc., into Northern Ireland and across the border into the Republic of Ireland, right across to um, Kulka in the west of Ireland. So it's a great big swathe of 27 sites that we look after. Um, the Interreg funding is 9.4 million. Um, and what we're doing is we're producing CAPs, which are conservation action plans. And those conservation action plans will have an impact on 25,000 hectares of special areas of conservation. So we're going to write those CAPs. And they are a kind of roadmap to recovery for those sites. And then as a result of those CAPs, we are also taking actions from them and actually doing them. So we're doing direct conservation actions on around about 15% of that land. So on 3,650 hectares of land, we're actually getting dirty, getting wet, doing science, actually um, doing conservation work on those sites. Um, we're also involved in training and community work, a legacy creation, education, um, creating guardian structures from the community to help them to, to continue to look after and value the sites in their communities. So that's the kind of the, the broad stretch of work that we're doing. Okay. And wow, that's, that's quite impressive. And mm. is, is, is the work also, um, kind of divided into like a work packages or like a specific areas. Yeah. Uh, because there's so many things I want to like you ask you about. So we, we're going to take it slowly. So so first, if you could outline like what are those those areas or I don't know if the term work package, are you still, are you also using it? Yeah, term we, work we package? do. I think that's one of, one of the interreg kind of um, go-to phrases. So oh, yes, we okay, have, okay, gotcha. yeah, we have work packages just the same as, as say the, the other, the other projects, but I was split up fairly, there are different work packages, but I'll just explain to you that the, the real broad, um, broad division. So we have our, um, lowland raised bogs, which are, um, mainly in Northern Ireland. And then we have our upland blanket bogs, two major sites that we are working on are cross border. So they have parts of the SAC that are in the north and parts of the SAC that are in the south. And there are upland blanket bog sites. 
And then we have our freshwater lakes and wetland sites, um, which are um, both of which are cross-border. Yes, um, there's Loch Arrow in Sligo and then there's the Maharavili uh, Kilruski Lake cluster in Monaghan, Fermanagh, that area. So, yeah, we, we, we're, we've got that network um, from lowland, upland and wetlands. And so you're doing like a first assessment on those sites, uh, what's what's going on, like, and then coming up with these these uh, management plans or recovery plans. So behind every good cap, every good conservation action management plan, we like to say there's a good map. So behind every cap, there's a good map, and the mapping is the first thing that we do. The mapping and the surveying. So we've, we we work with AFBI, um, Agriculture, Food, and Biological um, Biosciences, um, and other organisations to 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 map. We're using very innovative techniques of um, uh, flying lidar and um, wow. um, doing doing three D infrared. Um, imaging and, and oh my goodness there's so much but you will find out about more about that on on some of the future uh, podcasts I can't tell you all the technology of uh, that's gone into that because it's it's quite amazing um, so we can map the sites literally now with the new technology we're using down to individual pine trees down to individual rhododendron bushes down to individual drains that are not even visible to the eye but you can see through lidar you can see through infrared Once we can do all that, we bring all the maps together, um, ground truth them. So we go out and check that what we're seeing technology through our technology is actually reflected by what you see on the ground. Once you've done some ground truthing, you can take um, you can take what we've got, we're getting through our technology to be to be the truth, um, and from that we can work out what what needs to be done um, in terms of managing the site. But obviously, our management plans. The land doesn't belong to us. It doesn't mostly belong to the state. I was going to. I was going to yeah. ask that. Yeah. Yeah. So it belongs to private landowners. It belongs. I mean, some of it does belong to nature conservation organisations. Um, there are some nature reserves which are run as nature reserves, but that's very much the minority. Most is common land or it's farmland. It's privately owned. So we can't just come along and with heavy boots kind of come in and say this is what you must do. And also, I mean, for all our high tech flying of all these you know sort of remote controlled uh, remote uh, remote sensing techniques you know we're not on the ground we've not looked after it for generations and farmers have so we have to ask them what works and what doesn't work and what they can deliver because although we are, we are working to do conservation action on lots of these lands obviously we have to ask permission we have to get permission um The works that we do will have long, long-term impacts on the quality of that land, on how it can be farmed. So we can't come in and just do things. We have to work with the landowners. So that's a really, really important part of producing the caps is to reach out to all the farmers, reach out to the landowners, find out what works, find out what doesn't, and um, work with them to produce the plans which they will deliver in the future and which will, you know, will form their farms, part of their farms. Wow. I was thinking when you were saying that you can count individual rhododendron bushes from these drones, you can could could you also like a laser beam and destroy them while you are? Yeah, well, that would be nice, <laughs> but no, no, no. Currently, it's just a chainsaw. And a, and a <laughs> yeah. Okay, about and innovative technologies. Oh, yeah, okay. so rhododendron is one of one of uh, one of the most dreadful things that we we. We yeah. encounter on the box. Our favorite one. Yeah. Listen, yeah. so, but you're touching on a very important part of the thing that I uh, want to ask you about is a landowner 
uh, land ownership and the engagement with the local communities. Mm-hmm. Um, I presume this is like a huge and and could be very difficult part of it. Can you can you talk a little bit more like how you how you engage uh, with with the landowners? How that process looks like? Well, um, obviously, because of the COVID um, pandemic that we've been working through right in the middle of our project, a lot of the face-to-face communications that we would have done were made almost impossible. And in fact, as a result of that, um, we're very grateful that Interreg enabled us, allowed us to extend the project for a further year. We had no additional money, but we had money unspent because we couldn't, we couldn't do the work. So we've been able to have an, a further year and Thank goodness, most of that has been out of lockdown. So, I mean, we have um, all sorts of, of methods of talking to the landowners. I mean, there's formal meetings and gatherings. But tell you what, the most effective one is meeting the farmer, meeting the landowner over a fence, having a chat and then saying, oh, you know, do you fancy coming up for a cup of tea? Um, having a chat over a cup of tea on somebody's kitchen table is the most effective way of speaking to them. Um, we have uh, some fantastic staff who are just the nicest people. And you have to be a nice person. You have to be somebody who you can get on with. Um, so it's personal relationships that really, really makes the difference. We obviously do do outreach. We had a series of, um, so very recently, a series of um, meetings in a local in local hotels and local community groups up on Kulka, which was very successful, bringing people in who maybe we hadn't managed to reach out to um, in the past to say, you know, this is the plan we've, we're coming up with over the last few years of contacting you. Are you happy with this? Is there anything else you'd like us to put in? Is there any other comments you'd like? Um, so they're more formal. And then we do things like you know, in association with them, not to replace them. We do, um, you know, online questionnaires and things like that. So that even people who aren't maybe landowners, but maybe are recreational users of the land, they're hikers, they're walkers, they're dog walkers, they're um, shooting clubs, you know, and anyone who uses the land has got, you know, their, their, their voice needs to be heard. So we'll use other techniques to get hold of them and meet with them. And it's all very much a personal relationship on each of the sites um, to to get to know the people, to get to know who the community groups are that you need to speak to. And that takes a long time to develop. Um, And the project has been going for five years. So, you know, it has taken a long time to get them together. Um, And the whole work of the guardian structures is important as well to try and get local people involved, um, whether that be for using it for art classes or, you know, just real real sort of community building things and to to learn to value the the land that they can use um, in, in in the case of open land that's free for access but there are some land that's you know it it takes a lot of uh, negotiation negotiation to even get us on the land Um, and we're not looking for public access at all and that wouldn't help the land so you know it's it's different every site is different yeah listen um this is this must be incredibly um difficult and do you have because like how how can you even have a project to do something on the land that doesn't belong to you Right, it's it's well, it's um, super hard. So is, yeah, I, I let I, let me just follow up, give a follow up question. You know, th- does it often happen, or does it, or, and what you do in the cases where the landowner says like, well, no, you know, I, I don't want you there, mm. and, and what, well, what happens in those cases, and did did, did it even happen? Well, yes, I mean, there there have been cases where we've not been able to 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 talk 
you know, the land, the landowners into cooperating. Um, and it's just, it's, it's something you have to work around. You either say, well, you know, if there's absolutely no chance um, of, of them cooperating, you say, well, we won't be doing this. We won't be delivering that on the, this particular site. It's just not going to happen because you can't do it against the, against the wishes of the landowner. Um, but we have been able to work with farmers very, very effectively. And one of the things we've done is actually to provide them with training. So, for example, um, on um, Kulka, we've worked with two or three farmers and actually trained them to learn how to um, work on the peat bogs, to block up the, the ditches themselves. So they've gained incredible skills. They were already contractors, uh, part-time contractors, this, this couple of farmers that I'm thinking of, but they didn't have the skills of working on bogs. They now do, and they can subcontract that out as more and more peatland is, want to, is going to be rewetted, which is something that will happen because peatland rewetting is so big and so important. So actually providing the training to the farmers so that they have a business in the future has been really, really useful. Um, a couple more farmers have come to us again on Kulka. They've got lots of sheep wool that isn't of any use to them. It's not an economic, uh, uh, you know, they can't economically sell it as sheep's wool anymore. So we've been investigating with them and with IT Sligo about using that as a, a material for blocking the drains um, in the same way as um, earlier in the project, we used coir, which comes from tropical um, coconut. But this is a, a, a local, so we're trying to work local. We're trying to use resources and skills of the local landowners so that it's, it, they've got a real, they've got a real, um, sense of, of ownership. I mean, they do own the land, but they've now a sense of, of owning the, the conservation management of the land. So it just takes a long time uh, and you have to find the thing that the, that the landowner finds important. You know, if you find that thing that they think is, is the most important to work with that, you can get all sorts of side benefits out of that. Ah, that's 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 good to hear that you have a good good um, kind of good good response from from uh, farmers, uh, because my concern would be always you know that you you find a you know a rough farmer who says like yeah you know you're scientist you whether you know, right? So overall, they see the benefit of of what you do. On, on, yeah, on the... I I think so. Um, I think particularly now um, the the idea of carbon capture and carbon credits is starting to infiltrate into people's minds. And they're seeing that these wetlands are not just dumping areas. They're not just areas to dry out, to try and farm, um, that they are hugely valuable in terms of um, the carbon that they keep locked up. And hopefully with uh, management will actually suck down more. Currently at the moment, we're not looking at taking in carbon yet um, with many of these wetlands, but they've got huge amounts of carbon locked in them. So we want to stop them being net emitters of carbon and at least keep a lid on that so that what's what's there already stays there. But also with improvement to the land and making it wetter, we can actually start those bogs to start those bogs regrowing and actually have carbon capture going on, which is something that people are really starting to understand. They're starting to understand that value. Um, 
So to do that, we have to get the bogs in really good condition. Um, and to do that, sometimes you need to um, work with farmers to lower stock density on the on the land. Um, but sometimes fewer animals, um, produ- you know, on the land will benefit the bogs, stop them being degraded. But the actual individual animals will be fatter and ha- heavier and better quality, and they'll get the same amount of money out of having fewer animals on the land. So, you know, it's, it's getting those balances right, um, that the land is farmed, but that very sensitive parts of it are farmed differently. Uh, it's, it's interesting because I would imagine that if you suggest to the farmer that they, they need to have a less stock or destock the certain part of their land, they, they, they will chase you out and say, like, yeah, get out of here. And yeah, but if you is- if you have the facts behind you and you can say to them, yes, well, you know, you've got, I don't, I don't know the figures, I'm afraid I'm not a farmer and I'm not one of the people who goes out and does it. But, you know, if fewer animals are in better condition, you'll get, you know, you'll get a win-win situation. The, 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 the environment will win and the farmer will win that they'll have better stock to go to, well, they'll have fewer fewer losses. So, for example, if we can look at re- reprofiling um the bog, the hags up on the upland, so where there's been steep erosion and steep ditches, you're going to lose livestock in those. And that livestock is never going to go to market. But if you can re- reprofile them, make the hags less steep, make the, the ditches, you know, shallower and um, less less of a danger for broken limbs of those animals, that will help the environment. It'll help the bog to re- reform, but it will also help them to for their bottom line because they're not losing the livestock. Um, so you have to talk to them. You know, you know what they're trying to do, and they're trying to make a living off this land. Um, and the way to do that, there is there are now two prongs. They can farm their land for carbon, sort of. It's happening. It's, it's a it's a movement. Um, certainly in Scotland, that's happening um, quite considerably. Quite large areas are being farmed, literally farmed for carbon. Um, but there's, you know, so you can do that. You can farm for your livestock. But you know, combining the two is the best. I mean, this land has been formed by farmers. The, the, the habitats have been formed by farmers. They've been formed by agriculture and human change. It's just that human change over the last 50 years has led to huge losses of, of, the, um, of the habitat. And that's what we're trying to reverse. I mean, the, the farmers, you know, 100 years ago, they farmed that land and they're still farming that land. And we're just try and, you know, make it work for, for everybody, for wildlife and for the, for the landowners. So it's you're sitting kind of like in the, in in the middle. You're not you're not trying to uh, turn that land into like a wild wilderness, like a rewild or and no. on one hand, but the, on the other hand, you're you're also uh, trying to take care of the habitat. And you know it's it's very encouraging because you often hear from certain quarters of uh, environmentalists who are like don't like farmers like oh farming is doing so much damage and this and that and something else and then when you hear from farmers they actually care about the environment they they want they want the habitat they see the decline in birds and 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 species of various species so um I, I, i'm not surprised that they welcome uh cooperation that can you know on one hand benefit there and their business and farming and the other hand benefit the the habitat and the and the wildlife mm. on it yeah yeah i mean the, the farmers are not the baddies you know they they really aren't and 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 they they are very they are enthusiastic about the land and the and the wildlife that lives on the land and many of them will have seen a decrease 
in the quality of the wildlife, they, they'll talk about how it was when they were kids. They'll talk about how it was when their grandparents farmed that land. They would like to pass that land down to their children, um, their nephews, their nieces, their children in, in, as, you know, in a good condition. But there is always the problem of the changing baseline that what you saw as a child wasn't as good as maybe what your grandparents saw as a child, but what you saw as a child is to you really, really good. So, you know, we need to tell people, well, you know, in actual fact, what you saw as a child maybe is not as good as it could be, that you could actually pass your land down in better heart to the next generation. And that's what we'd like to help people do. You know, we'd like to 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 have the land back, you know, thrumming with with snipe and um, you know, waders breeding up on the uplands again, because those things have been lost. And and the water quality is so important as well. I mean everybody drinks water. It's not just the farmers, it's not just the landowners. The the, the work that we're doing on the upland peat bogs particularly um, is of of amazing importance to the quality of the water that comes off the land. I mean, you don't want to have brown peat stained water. You don't want to have bog bursts. You know, you want to have a stable sponge on top of the mountains, which steadily lets out uh, clean water. And that can happen. So um, the sponges that we have on top of the mountains, the peat bog sponges, they, they, they take the water in, they clean it, and they let it out in, in, in lower quantities. They don't, the water doesn't rush down the mountain through the cracks in the, in the bog once it's working properly. So the people that live downstream of these mountains benefit from this work as well. The water companies that are taking the water out don't have to clean it as much. They don't have to spend as much money. Um, you know, so it's, it, everybody wins from that point as well. And also this, um, doing this work, the whole idea of the sponge, the lowland wetlands, as well as the upland wetlands, they will actually reduce flooding peaks on the rivers by having a big a big sponge there to sort of hold the water rather than just letting it flow straight off if there's increased storminess, which is something with climatic change that we're having, you know, increased in, um, sudden storms, very, very severe storms, and that water just coming straight off the mountains. If you've got a nice, healthy sponge on top of the mountains and a nice, healthy sponge within the valleys, then that water will stay and it'll slowly be released and the towns are not going to be flooded as badly. The, the, the communities are not going to be as badly flooded. Um, so everybody benefits, not just the landowners, but people surrounding these areas as well. Yeah, that's for sure that the, these these wetlands and peatlands are super important, not only for yeah. carbon storage, but, but also for biodiversity. And like yeah. you mentioned, water quality, flood prevention, yeah. Uh, you know, and of course, things. fire prevention as well, because again, with this, um, this more extreme weather conditions that we're seeing, as well as the heavy storms, we're seeing increased droughts. Um, and unless the bogs are wet, they will burn. Um, they will burn accidentally or deliberately. Somebody will, you know, throw a cigarette out of a window or have a picnic and have a bar barbecue. And, you know, so the wildfires, uh, you know, can be serious. I mean, anybody who saw um, the wildfires that struck the Mourns um, in April last year, I mean, those fires were really close to the town of Newcastle. Um, so, you know, they are terrifying um, and they are so damaging to the environment. 
I mean, not just the, the wildlife, which has obviously made homeless and obviously killed um, by the flames, um, but um, the, the amount of carbon that goes literally up in smoke during one of those fires is, is huge. So we want to try and prevent those wildfires. So part of our work, particularly on Kolka and on Sleeve Bay, has been producing wildfire management plans um, and looking at how the fire will move across a landscape scale um, site and trying to work out small inter interventions that we can do to the prevent those fires from spreading, as well as learning how to fight them effectively, learning how to manage the land so that they doesn't so it doesn't catch fire. Um, so that's you know flood fire. We've got everything biblical plagues. <laughs> <laughs> Are you dealing with an issue of a of a commercial peat extraction as well? Because I, this is this is like a. Uh, a I think contentious subject. Uh, mm -hmm. at least in, yes, in, it is. It is so a very contentious subject. Um, we have to work with people who use the bogs for all purposes. I mean, commercial cutting of of the bogs is thankfully ceasing now. Um, in many places, it's not economic anymore either. Um, and there's always been a traditional use of the bogs for fuel, and it's a very very different thing to have. Um, to have a single person with a peat cutting spade going out and cutting for his own purposes. The, the cuts will be small, the, the pools created can actually be useful. Um, it's done on a, a small scale and that's kind of sustainable. Um, and it will lead to, um, you know, different habitats, a network, a mosaic of different habitats when that's done on a very small community scale. It's when you bring the machines in that the damage is really, really done. Um, and, you know, just stripping the entire bog is just not sustainable. It's It should not happen. Um, you know, people who are using peat in their gardens to grow wild flowers, I mean, for goodness sake, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's so stupid. <laughs> just, yeah, you know... You. If there's, sorry, one message, please don't use peat in your garden. Um, and I know that um, the use of peat will be, it, as horticulture, is is something that is um, being approached, you know, through 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 national policy and, and such like. So um, that hopefully will, the, the fact that, that you people won't be able to buy this stuff will mean that, um, you know, research is, is, is undergoing to produce alternatives through alternative methods and alternative materials um, which do exist and I know um, farmers say oh well peat is brilliant but peat wasn't used for horticulture 50 60 years ago um, so you know we never used it previously we've just had the easy easy solution you know go and buy a bag of peat from the garden center but there are alternatives out there um, and sometimes they may not be quite as convenient but you know it isn't convenient to lose our bogs it's not convenient to use our carbon, lose our carbon store, lose our biodiversity. We're in a biodiversity crisis. We're in a climate crisis. And if the cost of that means that you can't get your peat gardening done as easily and that you have to think twice about the materials you use around your home and the way you heat your home, I think it's a, a really fair price to pay. Yes, for sure. Is that is that uh, kind of like a leading... Uh, leading theme of uh, of your work in Can Project, the biodiversity crisis and climate we crisis. We haven't actually had to deal a huge amount with that. Thankfully, on the sites that we're on, there there isn't um, current active peat cutting. 
um, for for fuel or for horticulture. Yeah, but I mean, like in in general, you know, you you mentioned cli- climate crisis, biodiversity mm. crisis. So is is these there like a um, prevention of these two? like a leading star oh. like a like a north star of for the for your oh, project yes yes i mean the biodiversity is is the most important thing for us um you know because that 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 is their sacs their their special areas of conservation um but you can do both together you see and you can't do one without the other I mean, if you if you are if you are looking after the bogs um, and the wetlands for their wildlife, you will also be looking after them for the carbon. Um, it's the same. It's the same. Um, it's the same techniques go into into looking after the bog that make it good for carbon that make it good for wildlife. So they're both in equal. Um, they're working in pace um, and. Um, it depends on who you're speaking to. Again, as I say, you find what what people think is important and you focus on that and if people are thinking that the biodiversity crisis is the thing that they're really concerned about we will speak to them about that um, if they think the carbon crisis the climate crisis is the most important thing well that is the the idea that we'll lead on but they are both the same they're both as equally important they both are together and we have to work for both how much you have to compromise on on your goals of you know uh, carbon retention, carbon storage, restoring biodiversity, and at the same time uh, you know to maintain farming on on these and, and like but I'm just want to get a disclaimer right I'm not I'm not fishing here for farmer bashing or whatever because I'm no. like you think that farmers are generally the good guys and and we need their support and we need their their uh, involvement for any that. of that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I would imagine it will require some compromises on, mm-hmm. on those those plans. Yes, yes. I mean, there has to be compromise on both sides. And some things that we would like to see happen just can't happen straight away. Um, but you can plant the seeds of the ideas that, that, that what we would like to see. And with any seeds, they grow. And that's what we hope that, you know, Sometimes you'll you'll speak about a technique or a thing that we'd like to do, and people have never heard of it. It's new. It's it's revolutionary, and it takes a while for those ideas to to take root um, and to grow. And so, even if we just start the idea that maybe reducing, um, you know, reducing say grazing of deer on 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 some of the um, islands in Scotland might be a good idea. But you know, it'll take a while for that to take root. Um, you have to start somewhere. Um, and sometimes, yes, you do have to um, make compromises. So, for example, um, on Isla, um, one of the major projects has been removal of rhododendron, that baddie that we spoke about earlier on. Um, the rhododendron literally sucks the bogs dry. It prevents any other plants from growing underneath it. Um, it's incredibly good at spreading. So it's it, it would destroy the the upland wetlands, the the, the the whole the whole ecosystem would be destroyed if if that wasn't controlled but equally some of the landowners use the shelter of the uh, rhododendron for game birds for sh- for shooting for hunting which they make as part of their living you know they have hunters I think this in. is how it started this is how yeah. rhododendron yeah, was that's even how brought it started hmm. but they now understand that the, the the actual species that was chosen was you know the wrong one in terms of the impact it had on the environment and they're happy to support us clearing it but at the same time 
um, maybe in another site that didn't have that land use of the hunting or the, the shooting, we wouldn't be planting alternative trees, um, different species. But on Isla, the landowner has said, well, listen, you've taken all my shelter. You've taken all that, that shelter, um, for my, uh, my, my shooting. You know, can you plant different species of trees in certain places? So we've identified places where that wouldn't damage the bog and we've planted literally by hand hundreds and hundreds of tree saplings of native species that are not going to have the same negative impact on the bog. They're not going to dry the bog out. The places we've chosen are probably already too degraded to 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 re-wet. And we've planted those trees. And so that is a, you know, the farmer has said, well, you know, I'm quite happy for you to remove this. I can see the, the need for that, but I also see the need for shelter. Can you help us? We've put shelter in. Yeah. You know, so, you know, you do, you have to work with people and you have to give and take. Um, and that's the important thing. You keep an eye on the, the end goal and it may take a, a number of years to get there. Um, but on, and on the way, you'll have benefits that you never even expected um, to have. You know, things happen by surprise and changes. We don't fully understand these systems. So, for example, um, uh, when we when we dam the, some of the drains on the, the lowland wetland bogs, we actually use the peat itself to build the dams. So you get the diggers out, balanced on literally um the diggers are going up and down like you get seasick watching them because the, the <laughs> <laughs> seriously it's quite it's quite like oh so the, these huge diggers sitting on these enormous oaken rafts out in the middle of the bog and they're digging out very compacted um you know good quality uh peat and putting it into the ditches keying them into the edges so that they don't wash away and then those pits we call burrow pits that they've borrowed the peat from immediately fill up with water because the water level is raised and they have been fantastic for insects and fantastic for wading birds that we never expected to come back as quickly. But because we've accidentally produced these little, these little ponds in like stitching the land together with pond ditch, um, dam, pond ditch dam, we've, we've increase the the difference the edges of the habitat edges are really really important and the edges are are things that wildlife likes so we've produced this whole new mosaic of little edges of wetland edges and the the birds came back far quicker than we ever would have expected them to on some of these lowland wetland sites wow that's a that's a fantastic story uh listen abby i have a uh question do you find that some of the um, environmental organizations, some of the environmentalists who are well-meaning people, but through their, you know, activities, either on social media or maybe their other, you know, activist activism, they kind of antagonizing farmers. You know, they, you, I'm sure you know what I'm what I'm talking about. Some of the extreme views of you know let's rewild everything let's destock uh you know bogs and everything and do you see this as a kind of obstacle for your project that then when you're coming to the farmers you're being kind of labeled like oh there are these are these greenies environmentalists and and that produces a little bit of a uh you know negative approach from the beginning is is that the thing um yes i mean we need to it's slowly slowly catchy bonky 
Mm. Um, you know, you just you, you do need to, to work slowly. Um, can't take huge jumps and reintroduce the wolf. Um, you know. <laughs> you're, not, you're not starting with wolf. <laughs> yeah, we're not starting with wolves. We're starting with snipe. You know, it's 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 easier to to, <laughs> to do that. Um, yes, I mean, you know, there 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 is a huge. I mean, I I I am fascinated watching some of these projects, um, these rewilding projects. I am fascinated um, by the changes that can be wrought on the environment. Um, but many of the rewilding projects, they're not anti-farming. They're just farming in a different way. They're farming for wildlife rather than farming against wildlife. And it is amazing to watch the, the way nature comes back if you change the management. Um, and sometimes that management can be reducing livestock pressure, um, um, you know, changing things like that. So, but that we're not looking at rewilding these sites. We're looking at working with the, with the farmers. Um, and they understand that. Um, I mean, if we came in with guns blazing and saying, you know, you have to get all your no, land. For, for, you know, for sure. For sure. I, I, under, I understand that, but I'm just, you know? I'm just, I'm just wondering if you see, if, if, if your life would be easier, for example, without those, those, you know those voices those voices you know because i'm yeah. i'm thinking like if the farmer goes on facebook and the farmer goes on twitter and spends evening reading you know uh from you know so-called environmentalists right how they're doing everything wrong and you know farming needs to go and this and that and there's you know there are prominent figures who are just openly talking about oh we need to get rid of farming and so on and they're loaded with that information And then you coming in and say like, well, we are here to do like an action for nature and so on. They straight away go like, oh, I want like is so. So I'm just I'm just wondering if if you see any any um, anything like that. Um, I'm not aware of any of the landowners that we've dealt with um, having that idea. Um, I you know I just I, it isn't a question that 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 has been that has been raised because I do think even though they have very loud voices um, I think anyone who who takes what they read on social media as the Bible is is you know you you've got to see that there are extremists on both sides you know there are people out there as well that say oh we have to be you know really really high tech in our farming and really intensive and all that and they are equally as has you know far to the far to the to the other side as the the rewilding who want to get rid of all farming um in our environment we have very little wild environment left um in fact i'd say none in in ireland and scotland i would say we have no, nothing that has hasn't been impacted by people living on this air in, in these countries over since since the ice age you know we have altered the environment And that alteration of the environment, I mean, I suppose Scotland and, and Ireland would be, you know, oak forests and, and, and uh, Scots pine forests. And, you know, it would, we, would be, we wouldn't have people living here um, without the actions of people. See yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, Or just hunter-gatherers. Yeah, we've made the land and we need to continue to work on the land. Um, You can't just you can't just abandon it. And if you did abandon it, all you'd end up with is is you know fields of scrub, which you know 
any monoculture, whether that's a monoculture of of um, an economic crop or a monoculture of, of scrub, it's not going to be good. I, I mentioned earlier, you know, about edges. You need changes. You need differences. Um, the monoculture of, of, you know, plowed land is not good for the environment, but you can work with with that to um you know using creative payments to the farmers you know the the, the results driven results based payments are so important they've been the farmers have been receiving payments to do x y and z which has damaged the environment but there's nothing they're not going to say they 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 need the money you know farming isn't economic in many cases and they do need subsidies but those subsidies should maybe be paid for different things um and it's been discovered that the subsidies that were paid i mean they weren't designed to destroy the environment they weren't designed to do that it wasn't somebody sat down oh i want to destroy the bogs and i want to just you know pollute the wetlands and um have algal blooms in the rivers I, that, that's not what they were designed for <laughs> it accidentally delivered those results as well as increase increases in farming incomes but it can be done again, and it needs to be looked at, and maybe results-based payments for other results. So farming for your carbon and farming for your wildlife is just as important as farming for the other things. You know, um, instead of being paid to take hedgerows out, be paid to put hedgerows in. Um, you know, it's as simple as that. You need to just change um, those things and work with the farmers. Um, you know, we, we live in a, a very heavily populated, um, you know, Western Europe. There's no way that you can that you can just stop farming it. I just want to come back to something that you said in the beginning of the of the of the show because you mentioned you know payments for for farmers and but then on the beginning of the show you you mentioned that Interreg is putting an emphasis uh, on continuation of these these initiatives right because that is that is one of the problems that oh there is a initiative which is like oh you know plant hedges and and it it takes goes for five years and farmer you know takes the takes the funding plant hedges and then the project finishes and then comes another one that says like oh you need to have a bigger pasture that then when we're gonna uh, pay you so 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 then the farmers breaks out this machinery and and removes the hedge that he laid out five years earlier so how how does that work how how you're you, if you can go into more detail how interreg is is meant to ensure that these things will continue after the project is finished well through the tool of the conservation action plans because they um they are in place for you know 20 odd years so the 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 decisions and the plans and the route maps to the recovery of the land are written down um, and any future projects will be, hopefully, will be delivered within those conservation action plans. So they won't go against that. So that gives us, there's a legacy there. And then towards the end of that, those periods, there is an obligation on the state's, um, you know, nature conservation bodies to write new plans that take into account the changes, hopefully, that have been made towards recovery of those lands and build on them. But it is a problem. It is a huge problem that, that you know, that, that can, it's only, you know, it's this period of funding. But there is other funding coming on stream. Um, and the ideal is that it will build on the money that has been spent and the way it has been spent um, 
with within CAN using the conservation action plans that have been written through CAN to deliver further on into the future. But it's always only a hope. We can apply for money. Conservation bodies can apply for money. Um, they can put together fantastic plans and the money maybe goes somewhere else. Um, but we are working with um, other projects which cover the same areas that we're working on currently. Um, so, for example, Wild, uh, wild Atlantic Nature um, crosses over us. Some, uh, some of our land um, in Kulka is covered by that project. There are other projects coming on stream all the time. And as long as our information is accessible, which it is, um, and that our techniques and the, the the reports that we've written are um, able to be used by these future projects, whether they are already in existence and delivering or whether they're in the future after CAN finishes, working together and working from the same so that we don't just throw away everything we've learned, that it will build into the best practice that will form future projects, although CAN will no not exist anymore except possibly on an, the odd interpretation panel or the odd leaflet or something, um, that the, the ideas and the science and um, the way we've worked will continue and will be delivered in future funding uh, rounds. So I know there there is um, huge moves through the peace funding um, to, to get more environmental work done and there's an environmental pillar for that um, and that if we are successful not it's not the CAM project per se but if the partnerships can come together again and form another uh, project they will use the CAM's expertise um, and um, gathered um, you know the stuff that we've gathered together and the way we've worked and, and that to to help deliver further projects that will be called something else that people won't be able to remember what it actually stands for. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, you know, like, you're, you, this is a thing that we can clearly see, even, even by, you know, looking at this podcast, that there is a more and more of these projects. And I think that the, the issues that we mentioned, like, you know, climate crisis, biodiversity collapse, these are slowly filtering into the mainstream. They are slowly filtering into the uh, minds and hearts of people, uh, and and they're not like a, some you know on the fringe subjects that nobody heard about, and therefore they're filtering to the uh, policymakers and governments and so on. And so I, I I see the kind of tide turning in that regard, and that gives it like you said hope that there will be more projects coming down the line that will. Um, continue funding and will sustain those 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 yeah. work. Yeah, and th and that is it is needed. It really is needed. Um, we can't just sit back and 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 say, oh, we've done our bit. I mean, all of our bodies that have worked in partnership together, and we would like to, you know, deliver more. But sometimes, you know, there is there is this this thing that you know you have to make innovations and you have to do new things. Sometimes we know what to do. It doesn't need to be new. It needs to be more of the same. So sometimes there might be an, um, a need for that kind of funding, continual funding. Now, say, so for example, I mean, in Scotland, um, Peatland Action is doing a fabulous job. Um, they're putting vast quantities of money in um, to doing and, and in improving their skills and everything, but doing what they know needs to be done. You know, you, you take the land that is dry and you wet it again. And if you add water, you get instant wildlife. It's it's a bit like that. It's just you know, um, you know. So we need more schemes like Peatland Action, um, maybe a, a Peatland Action for Ireland, um, um, and 
you know, one of the problems of peatland action in Scotland is that there is not enough contractors um, to deliver all the actions that are needed. There's not enough trained people who can deliver. I mean, it is not just a case of, you know, easy work. It's it's tough. It's difficult. It's tough environmentally in terms of you're working out in a, in a very, very hostile environment with machinery that, you know, generally doesn't float on a bog. You know, it, it's difficult to do. Um <laughs> You know, one and a half ton tractor is not not a home in a puddle, you know, um, a puddle on 8,000 years worth of, of, of peat. Um, so one of the problems they've had is is that. And one of the things we've done is is work with the landowners to train them. Now, we, we would like to see much more of this training and maybe have, you know, a central government training program for the provision of these services so that we could put peatland action or an equivalent into place so that um you know we can get the work done because you know you, if you can't get the work done because you haven't got the workers you need to train more workers you know so maybe coming at it from a different direction would be would be good you know but always it comes down to money um people won't do this work for free yeah, they well, won't do this work yeah, on their own. You can't blame you can't you can't blame them really. No, exactly. It's it's their it's their 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 life their livelihood. Um, so whatever we do, you know, the, the landowners need to um, have have it work economically for them. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Abby, tell me, we 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 spoke a lot about bog and the work wor work that you're doing on the bogs. Uh, what about the fresh uh, freshwater lakes? Because you mentioned lakes, can you can you give us a little bit of a uh, glimpse into uh, what work you're doing on that. Yeah, on I mean, that, that has been a very, very different part of our project. Um, so, it, you know, it's easy to link the lowland wetland bogs and the upland blanket bogs. They're easy. They sort of link together. But yes, the, the, the work on the, on the wetland lakes is, is on the wetlands and the lakes is very, very different. So we've two main areas with Loch Arrow out in Sligo. Um, and then there's the Magaravili Kilruski lakes um, on the borders in Monaghan. Um, so, um, up at um, Loch Arrow, the main project, the, the main thing that was identified by the writing of the Conservation Action Plan was the impact of alien invasives. So a waterborne version of the rhododendron um, in, the, in the water. Um, the water was, the, the lake there was uh, known for its immense clarity, its diamond clear waters, um, and the base um, of the waters, uh, the, the base of the loch was coated in um, things called caraphytes, which are basically a cold water reef almost, um, little stone worts. They're plants that have um, that trap the, the, uh, trap the ca calcium, so they're very, very rich in calcium, and they form almost a, a kind of rainforest at the bottom, full of wildlife, full of, um, you know, crayfish and um, spawning trout and, and, and absolutely amazing um, fishery there. Um, the wild trout fishery um, of Loch Arrow is it's world famous. It's actually where fly fishing was developed for the first time. So, you know, it's really important um, fishery. Um, and I mean, important for the wildlife because it's not only the, the economic, um, the trout, which are used by people, it's, it's all the other animals that live that aren't economic, but are a part of the biodiversity of the lake. But unfortunately, um, a few years ago, I mean, not actually that many years ago, um, there was a weed introduced into the lake um, called Elodia natalii. Um, and this is an, an alien invasive. Um, that sounds like something out of ET, but it's it, it spreads <laughs> incredibly quickly and it blankets out all the light from the caraphytes and it forms a disgusting 
um, matted, deep um, vegetation layer, which just shouldn't belong there and doesn't belong there. So one of the projects that we've been doing is trying to work, survey, you know, how bad that problem is and then work with people so that it remains um, only where it is and doesn't spread any further and doesn't spread to different uh, water bodies that, that, don't have an invade this alien invasive. So one of the a lot of the work we've done has been experimental there and finding solutions for it and trying out different solutions to try and um, get rid of it or, or at the very least control it. So one of the things that the team has has um, developed is they have laid um, like carpet on the base of the of the lock and it's a carpet made of a natural material called jute. And they have laid uh, tracks of that so that the fishermen can go in and out um, into the deeper water where there is no elodea. They can do their fishing. And when they come back, they're not going to get, one, they're not going to get their motors all tangled up and damaged. And two, they're not going to carry even the tiniest amount of elodea on a um, on the base of a boat or on a paddle of a canoe or, you know, on fishing tackle and then taken to another lake will immediately spread that. So what they've done is they've carpeted the lake um, and allowed access in and out of that area so that it, what we've got is is controlled. But they've also found that that carpet has cleared 98, 99% of all the elodea growth um, and it has allowed the caraphytes to come back. So the elodea can't grow on that jute, but the caraphytes can grow through it um, very effectively. So the, the, the caraphytes can recover. Um, so what we've done is a pilot study. We haven't been able, the money we had wouldn't have done the whole lake. It maybe isn't something that we'd want to do, but at least we now have a technique that we know that works. Um, so that's at Loch Arrow. That's been very effective working with the anglers again in the same way as we work with the farmers. You work with the people who use the site, working with the anglers to explain to them about um, cleaning all their equipment and drying their equipment and making sure that they're not carrying invasives into other areas. That's a that's um, a that's a big thing, right? All over all all over the world, they're, they're moving yeah. moving of various types of invasive from lake to lake. In, and I remember. Uh, I think it's in Spain that when you register a watercraft, like a boat or, or pontoon or whatever, it's registered for that, like this one body of water and you cannot use it on the, any, any other one. And the reason is exactly uh, invasive species. So, so people who hear about it first are like, oh, what, what the hell, right? I bought a boat and I can only use on one lake. Like, yes, this is the reason. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's very well, that important. that that is not that's not something we we do here. Um, you know, although we would encourage people to stay, you know, to stay on the one body, that would be a great thing if you could do that. But people do move; they do move to different different lakes. But if they do that in a responsible manner and make sure that all their equipment is clean and dry and disinfected, um, you know, maybe I have a period of 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 time while the boat is out of water, so that any um, any weed will die um, that they've managed, that they've missed in the cleaning so that, the, the, so that you're not just taking it from one place to the other in the afternoon, that, you know, it's out of the water. Um, and just educating people about the problems. I mean, the anglers don't want to see this horrible weed spreading. They don't like it. It's not good for their fisheries. So it's in their interests um, to prevent it spreading and to prevent it getting worse and to understand how 
how it works. So we've done science, you know, and um, um, explaining, you know, how it, it this particular weed, if, if you break off a tiny, tiny bit, that will grow from both ends. So, you know, that's, that's you know, again, working with, working with the, the people who use the water, working with the people who use the, the land, it's, it's really important. You can't do it without. But with the pilot project we've worked on there has been very, very effective um, and, you know, huge support from the from the anglers and from the the lock users anglers are, are anglers are in force when it comes to these oh they are because they are they are true environmentalists i mean they really what they want a pristine environment they really do and if you're helping them to produce that you're helping them to have their nurseries for their trout that's what they want um they are totally on our side when it comes to to to, to controlling this some people would come in, you see, though, that don't understand that. They're not anglers. Maybe they're, you know, they've got a canoe that they got for Christmas and they, you know, they've got it on the trailer on the back and they don't understand that, you know, they go here one day and then next day they're, you know, they're on holiday and they take their canoe somewhere else, you know, and they, they paddle there. They don't realise. So it's not the ones that are are, um, are set on the one lock and the, the one lake and they've always fished there. They're really easy to get through to and to speak to and to work with. It's maybe the ones that move that are a little bit more difficult but information panels we have information panels we have um hygiene stations and we have this access onto the lake so that you can get in and out without spreading um the yellow deer um, is really good so um a similar kind of not 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 quite the same um uh, problem at uh, maharavili and kilruski lakes that's a cluster of seven little wetlands um, and their problem is that they are nestled within the rolling green, um, rich agricultural land of uh, Monaghan. And uh, one of the problems is finding where the water comes from and what it's bringing in with it, because currently those lakes are no longer sparkling diamond clear. They are green pea soup. And that's because, because all, the, nu- all the nutrition that are coming from the food nutrients. So it's been working. It's been working. Um, working to, to try and find out where the water comes from um, so that we can then in the future work to reduce the number of pollutants coming in and 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 that hasn't been delivered yet it's something in the future you can't start telling people not to do things if you don't understand science so a lot of the work has been done has been on the science it's been on really high-tech tracking of water using radon and you know just seeing exactly where the water is coming from so that in the future we can work with the landowners where that water is coming from to to reduce the amount of nutrients going in we've also been working one of the ideas um sadly a kind of failure of the project but it's been an interesting failure Um, one of the ideas was to identify pop populations of the native white-clawed crayfish, which was um, very common on these lakes, um, and reintroduce them from um, in a kind of Noah's Ark, you know, take them from places where they were common and move them to places where they had become locally extinct. Unfortunately, we've not been able to find enough to do that. Um, so one of the things we've discovered is that the population of native crayfish has, has reduced so much that it's impossible for us. It has been impossible for us to do the thing that we wanted to do, which was to repopulate areas. So we've identified that this is a very, very important task. We really need to work with those crayfish more. And one of the problems, again, with the native crayfish, um, we're talking another Another alien invasive is the American signal crayfish, which carries with it a nasty crayfish plague. And so where that is, 
it doesn't suffer from the crayfish plague. It just carries it. Um, it's part of its own uh, own biological makeup. But um, the um, Irish crayfish um, never evolved any defences against that particular um, um, germ. So, you know, they die. Um, and that's one of the problems. So, again, it's those alien invasives. It's 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 working, you know, you work with people to re- make them realise that aliens are not a good thing to have, that you shouldn't introduce different species into an environment without understanding the impact of them. Nobody could have understood, could have thought that that would have caused that problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the white-clawed crayfish and, and you also mentioned the priority species. This is one of the priority species. I just have them here. So, but it's white claw crayfish, hen harrier, curlew, red shank, snipe, golden plover, red grouse, marsh. Fritillary. Thank you. <laughs> I took a while to learn how to say that word as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful butterfly. It is a beautiful butterfly. Right. Did yeah. I got this? So, how does it? So, what does it mean that these are priority species? Well, they're species that are at risk of local or, or even national extinction, um, that the numbers are really at risk, um, of the habitats that they depend on are at risk of, of disappearing. Um, so the numbers are decreasing, um, and that is the problem. So it's working on the habitats that they use to, um, in the case of things like marsh fertility, making sure that the meadows with the devil's bit scabious that is their food plant are managed to enable the food plant to survive and therefore the the butterflies will feed on those and you know so it's it's understanding what the species needs and then understanding things that you can do to fine tune the environment and make it better to make it um more suitable for those for those species um listen, so when when the plot project is is uh, due to uh, conclude because you mentioned there's like a one year. Um, well, we had thankfully that extra year. Um, some of the partners' work is complete, um, and so, for example, the work on Loch Arrow is complete. Um, the scientific work on um, on Mangrovili is pretty much complete. Still writing the conservation action plan, just still doing the outreach work with local uh, communities, but you know, fairly nearly complete. Um, so some partners are, you know, things that they came to do were done and they're, you know, they're now withdrawing, not withdrawing from the project because they're still involved in the, the overall project. But, you know, so it's it's steadily um, decreasing. The activities are decreasing through this year. Um, the last the last partner to to leave the project, as it were, will be the lead partner, will be ourselves, Nuri Morden Down District Council, because we have to do the financial tying of loose ends and reporting and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, towards September, October, November, we're having our closing conference in September um, to celebrate the work that we've done and to showcase all the, the fantastic things that have happened um, and to identify any shortcomings or problems or future work that, that needs to be done. So we're doing that in September. And then after that, you know, the partners will start to um, stop working for the project directly um, and it will all be finished by December. All right. All right. Gotcha. Um, Abby, uh, this, this is fantastic work that you're doing and uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the coming episodes where we're going to dive uh, deeper into science of all those uh, particular projects, uh, especially on the lakes and, and with the uh, bog, because like we mentioned, bogs are very important and are a very hot topic right now. 
Um, tell us, is there anything you want to leave us with? Any words of wisdom? Any advice for listeners? Anything you want to leave us with? Okay, uh, don't use peat in your garden. <laughs> yes, yes, people, yes. don't use peat in your garden. Do not use peat in your garden. Bing, yeah. bing, yeah. bing. And and bing, and, bing. and also, don't put a plastic grass in your garden either. No, don't put plastic grass in your garden. No, um, <laughs> wetter is better. Uh, our peatlands are the, the peatlands that we have are so important globally. Um, they're, they're massive, massive stores of carbon, and we owe that to the planet to look after them um, um, and to uh, to manage them so that they keep on sucking in more carbon, and so that they manage to 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 um, help us hopefully combat the climate crisis. That enjoy the environment, um, but don't damage it. Um, you know, if you're out walking on a hill, don't just sort of stray off the path. You know, don't a single generation of of uh, golden plover, you know, of, of snipe. You know, you could trample on a nest. Stay on the path. Um, keep your dogs on leads when you're up in the hill. You know, don't disturb the livestock. There's so many little take home things, you know, that, that individuals can do. Don't dump in your local bog. I mean, where I lived when I was very first married, there was a bog down the road. And, you know, the local people used to call it the dump. Oh, lovely. Yeah. How lovely. It was the dump. Where, where do you get rid of your rubbish? Oh, just down the dump. Yeah, and that was a bog. Um, that doesn't happen anymore, thank goodness. But people still do fly tipping. Don't do fly tipping. Don't litter. It's Everyone knows these things. You know, you really do know it. Just do it. <laughs> Don't throw your coffee cup out of the window. Don't throw your cigarette out of the window and end up burning down half a, a mountainside. You know, take care of your environment. There's so many little things that you know you can do. So do it. Words of wisdom. Abby, thank you very much for, for being here with us and uh, sharing, your, uh, sharing all the information about CAN Project. Okay. Thank you very much for inviting me. Bye-bye. <laughs>